book of James. It comes after the book of Hebrews. Today we begin our study in the epistle of James. And as has been our custom, we usually spend the first Sunday in our study of a particular book doing background study so as to introduce the book. And I think, at least in my opinion, this is necessary. But oftentimes the importance of it is not recognized until we're finished with our entire study of the book. So um, be patient with me and, and, and bear with me because I think what we will talk about today will really be important for us to sort of unpack what we find uh, in this book, the book of James. The book of James is included in what has been called or what are called the general epistles. Um, these include First uh, and Second Peter, First and Second, Third John, um, actually First John, and then uh, Jude as well. Uh, rather than being written to a single congregation or an individual, as we find in Paul's writings, they're written to the church at large. You should know, as we begin our study in the book of James, that the book of James has had a controversial history. Along with uh, the book of Hebrews and the book of Revelation uh, and some of the general epistles, uh, these were the last to be recognized, at least in the West, by the church at large as being part of Scripture. Now, let me just take an aside here, uh, a parenthesis if you wish. Uh, I should tell you that I do not accept the traditional Orthodox view when it comes to how the Scripture came to become the Scripture. Uh, Generally, it is believed that in the 4th century, at various councils, the Council of Hippo, the Council of Carthage, that the church sort of voted and said, Yes, we think these books should be in the Bible. Uh, It is my opinion that the New Testament was established before 70 A.D., before Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed, and they were not established by the church but by the apostles. And when you read Paul's writings, particularly in Ephesians 2, that the church rests on the foundation of Christ and the apostles, that it was uh, the apostles, those chosen by God, who established canon who said, these are the books of the Bible. And if you want to talk to me more about that later, we can. The book of James does not appear by name, that is, the epistle or the book of James, until the third century. But it's something that shouldn't worry us, because in the ancient world it was not uncommon for people to cite uh, sources without telling us where they got their information I think it's safe to say that the book of James was not rejected, but it was neglected Uh, for different reasons. One is people were not sure about who wrote it, because after all, James was a fairly common name. Uh, We don't know, or people weren't sure about to whom it was written. It's a very Jewish book, and as the church became more and more non-Jewish, if you wish, or Gentile, people began uh, to be somewhat disturbed by that. It is interesting to me that Origen, one of the early church fathers, end of the 2nd century, beginning of the 3rd century, didn't say a word about the book of James until he came into contact with the church in Palestine. Uh, He was in Egypt, and once he came in contact with the Jewish church in Palestine, then he began to write about the book of James. So apparently it was very familiar to the people in Palestine, but not so much outside that region. When the Reformation came about, the popularity of James took a nosedive once again. Erasmus questioned that it was written uh, by James, the brother of Jesus, and said it, in fact, uh, was written by someone else. Martin Luther, I think, had the strongest denunciations about the book of James. 
he wrote, and let me quote here, that James mangles the scriptures and thereby opposes Paul and all scripture. He characterized the book as an epistle of straw. When he translated the New Testament into German, uh, he had the books of the New Testament, and then at the end, he included uh, Jude, Hebrews, Revelation, and the book of James. So he counted them as scripture, but sort of secondary in terms of importance. He doesn't reject, or Luther did not reject it as worthless, um, but he said that it just really didn't fit in with the rest of the teachings of the New Testament. And I think that's sort of a general opinion that you hear even today. Uh, A local TV evangelist, whom you would know if I told you his name, remember hearing him years ago, he was arguing that this book was written by James, the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee. He was the first apostle killed. He was martyred by Herod. And this man said, God had him killed because he wrote the book of James. In other words, what we find in this book is so dangerous and so against scripture that God just had, you know, had him killed. Well, I find that rather remarkable that God had him killed but didn't do anything about the book. I mean, wouldn't it be easier to get rid of the book? and eh, kill him if you want, but I mean, here the book of James still remains a part of scripture. And it is an important book. It is part of Scripture. And I hope that as we go through it, you will learn a great deal from it. Who wrote the book of James? Let's back up a minute and let's ask ourselves first, is it really important to know who wrote the book of James? If the Bible is the word of God, and we confess that it is, we affirm that it is, then does it really matter who wrote particular books? I think this gets to the heart of matter, the matter of how we view the Bible. I think many people view the Bible as written almost by human robots, that they just sort of channeled the Bible. I guess that's perhaps the best way to put it. That God spoke and they were sort of in a trance and then they just wrote this out. That's the way many people view the Bible. I don't think that's how the Bible was written at all. That if it were, then why do the books sound differently? Why are their expressions different? Why do different personalities come into play? Because God worked through people. He used their personalities. He used their cultures, their metaphors, the language they were familiar with. And that's what comes through in their writing. So it is important to know, at least in my opinion, who wrote these books. Let's get a sense of the person. And then I think we have a a better understanding of why he used certain language. The author of the book of James, if you look at the very beginning of the book, says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, that's the way people wrote back then. That is, they didn't sign their names at the end of the letter as we do. They put their name at the beginning, which if you think about it, makes a whole lot more sense because generally when we get a letter, if it's not on the envelope, we go to the end. Oh, okay, that's who wrote it. And then we read the letter. Uh, Back then, this is me talking to you greetings, and then you have the letter. And that's what you find here in the first verse. It's James, written to the 12 tribes, greetings. This is the way letters were written back then. At least four men are identified as having the name of James in the New Testament. The first is one of the 12, the the brother of John. They were the sons of Zebedee. They were known as the sons of thunder. James, John, and Peter were the three of the inner circle, When Jesus goes to the Mount of Transfiguration, it's with these three men. Uh, 
in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus takes the 11 disciples, because Judas has run away. He leaves eight of them, and then he takes the three, and the three go with him a little bit further separate. So these three men were sort of the inner circle of the 12 disciples. As I said, he was the first apostle to to be martyred. He was put to death by the sword uh, on orders from King Herod in the year 44 A.D. There is another apostle or disciple named James, James the son of Alphaeus, known as James the Younger or James the Lesser. Younger sounds better than lesser. Uh, We have James the father of Judas, not Judas Iscariot, someone who's also known as Thaddeus. And then we have James, the Lord's brother. Uh, Even though uh, the brothers of Jesus did not believe in him during his earthly ministry, uh, they did convert, they did accept him as the Messiah after his resurrection. And James, at least, achieved a prominent uh, place in the Jerusalem church. Now, it is possible that another James wrote it. Uh, But the fact that James simply says, James and doesn't identify himself. We're reading into it, obviously, but it seems to indicate that, oh, it's James. You know, it's like today with celebrities, a single-name person, you know, Cher. Oh, it's Cher, you know. Uh, Probably not the best example, but James. And people would know, oh, that's who it is. And so, to me, that boils it down to two people, either the apostle, one of the three of the inner circle, or James, the brother of Jesus. James the apostle was killed in 44 AD. It's unlikely that he wrote this book. I believe it was written by James, the brother of Jesus. This James was a major figure in the early church, especially among Jewish Christians. He became known as James the Just because of his faithfulness to the law and his steadfastness in prayer. We know that he was killed in 62 AD. And we know this from two, at least two historical sources. He was stoned to death by the Pharisees. Uh, this was a time when the Romans were changing governors. And during that transition period, when there was no Roman governor, the Pharisees got together and they put uh, Herod to death, or not Herod, James to death by stoning. In the New Testament, we know that this James is a major figure in the church from a number of places. And when I started out, I think I had two places in my mind that, that I knew of and then came up with about half a dozen. Um, in, James, in Galatians chapter 1, uh, Paul talks about his conversion, and after three years, he goes up to Jerusalem to meet the major people in the church to say, listen, I'm not persecuting the church. Uh, the Lord has appeared to me, and I want to preach. And he writes, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter. And stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. So James is counted as an apostle. In 1 Corinthians 15, as Paul is giving what seems to be an early church confession about the resurrection, how that Jesus, after he was resurrected, appeared to a number of people. Um, He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also. Uh, In Acts chapter 12, uh, 
We're told at the beginning, James the Apostle is killed, and Herod said, whoa, the Jews like this. He went out and arrested Peter, puts him in prison. He's going to kill him. Miraculously, an angel delivers Peter at night, and Peter goes to the house of his nephew, John Mark, and and people can't believe it's him. They think it's a ghost. And finally, they're convinced it's him, and this is what Peter tells them. Tell James and his brothers about this. Again, the first words out of Peter's mouth is, you need to tell James. The Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, uh, all the Christians got together, the Christian leaders, to decide, should Gentile Christians be circumcised? Do Gentiles have to follow the law? Everyone says their peace, and then James stands up, and we read, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. In other words, what James says is the final word. And he says, we need to send out a letter to the churches, and that's exactly what the church does. James becomes the head of the church in Jerusalem with, uh, I think, incredible authority. When Paul goes to Jerusalem the last time, he is arrested there this, this last time, Luke says, when we, because Luke is in the group, arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. So James is the head of the church in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the mother church, so he is a major figure in what is going on. Now, again, let's take a little detour uh, digression because this is important. It's outside the issue of what we're talking about, but it is important. And that is, if James was the brother of Jesus, how is that possible? He is referred to by Paul as the Lord's brother, other places as well. The issue is whether or not Mary had other children. In Matthew chapter 13, we are told that Jesus had brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, as well as sisters, so at least two sisters. Now, this doesn't set well with certain people in the church, uh, and so they, pre- they present various solutions. First of all, that Joseph had children by another woman, she died, and then he married Mary, and then she only had Jesus. There are those who said, no, no, actually they weren't brothers, they were cousins. And and so, you know, cousins can be like brothers, but they were really cousins. And, And the whole reason that people are doing this is because they believe that Mary was perpetually a virgin. That is to say, uh, She conceived by the Holy Ghost as a virgin. She gave birth to Jesus, and then she never had sexual relations her whole life. This is something that is not taught in Scripture. Uh, We find it arising in the third century with Jerome particularly. Uh, And let me just give you two places that contradict this. Uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 7. Luke writes, she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. Well, you don't refer to a child as the firstborn unless you have children that come after that. And Luke is writing decades later. Um, so he knows that Jesus is the firstborn because there's a secondborn, thirdborn, fourthborn, so on down the line. And then in Matthew chapter 1, talking about Joseph, who the angel tells him, you know, this thing that your wife is carrying is, is by the Holy Spirit. Uh, we are told he had no union with her, that is with Mary, until she gave birth to a son. And grammatically, at least in Greek, it means that he did have union with her after she gave birth to Jesus. Okay. So, 
Mary had Jesus as a virgin, then she had sexual union with her husband Joseph and produced at least six other children. And James, at least his name is always mentioned first, he seemed to be the oldest of these half-brothers and sisters of Jesus. Does that mean that's why James got to be the head of the church, since he was related to Jesus? And I would say, no, it is not. He didn't believe in Jesus until after the resurrection. And after the resurrection, he and his brothers put their faith in Christ. And like us, they were saved by God's grace and by the death of Jesus, their half-brother. Okay, the circumstances of the letter. And again, we have to ask the question, does it really matter? Do we need to know the circumstances of the letter? Does it matter when it was written, to whom it was written, the circumstances behind it? And I would again say yes, because we need to know, and this is important, we need to know what this meant to the people it was written to. Many people today in the church think, this is written to me. The Bible is written to me. And I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but no, it wasn't. Okay? The book of James was written to a specific group of people. We need to know what it meant to them, how it applied to them, and then we take a secondary application and apply it to ourselves. Um, if you don't do that, then I think in many ways you reduce the Bible to really a series of magical incantations or magical formulas where God has just sort of shot this thing out of heaven and the historical context, none of that matters because God's talking directly to you. And that's the way that many people see the Bible. But this book, the book of James, was written, this letter was written to a specific group of people. It meant something very specific to them. We need to find out what that was and then what we can learn from it and how we can apply it to our lives. It seems clear, at least from reading this epistle, that the readers were Jewish. The, the, the vast majority of the people to whom James is writing were Jewish. The language is that of Judaism. The imagery is that of the Old Testament. Um, and I could just give you several examples. If you look at chapter 4, verse number 4, James writes, You adulterous people... Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Now, if you just take this on face value, one would say that, uh, that James is writing to a bunch of uh, people who are engaged in illicit sexual activity, and he's just sort of bad-mouthing them, you're calling them names, uh, when he's telling them these things. No, if you know the Old Testament... In the old, and by the way, this is in English, in Greek, which James was written in, the word adulterous people is actually feminine. It is adulteresses. You adulteresses. It's like, what's that about? Is he, you know, is he, is he like Paul? Does he hate women? You know, that, that old thing? No. In the Old Testament, we are told that God's relationship with his people is like that of a husband with a wife. They're like, well, no, no, no. I don't need the Old Testament. That's in the New Testament, too. No, but in the Old Testament, going away from God is seen as adultery. So when James writes this, you adulterous people, his readers who are Jewish, they understand this. That if we are friendly with the world, then we are enemies with God. It means basically we've cheated on God. We've committed adultery by being friendly with the world. Uh, 
in chapter 2, verse number 19. Uh, he says, you believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Well, the belief in one God, we, uh, this is monotheism, this is Judaism at its core. James writes about the law throughout his book, and the Jews know what he's talking about. Gentile believers would not necessarily understand. So he's writing to Jews. But secondly, it seems that he is writing to Jews who are poor. That is, economically They are in the lower stratas of society. They're really in difficult situations. In chapter 5, we see that they are oppressed and being taken advantage of by their landlords. In chapter 2, they are being taken to court by rich people, chapter 2, verse 6. And verse number 7, their faith is scorned by the rich. They are told to be patient and to remember that the coming of the Lord will happen. The Lord will come as judge and deliverer. In the meantime, they are to uh, face their trials, their sufferings with patience, with endurance, so that they might reach maturity. But all of that, in many ways, is background to what James is actually trying to say. In this letter, he is not concerned so much with the church being in the world, but the world being in the church. And as we go through this epistle, you will see that what he is concerned about is these people are now beginning to act like non-Christians. So the verse that we read earlier, chapter 4, verse 4, friendship with the world is hatred toward God. Chapter 1, verse number 27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And the worldliness that comes into the church is demonstrated in a number of ways. One is they fawn over the rich and neglect the poor, even though they are poor themselves. Their uncontrolled critical speech. Uh, James has a lot to say about what comes out of our mouths. Their selfish ambition, their arrogance. But above all, and I think if there's one thing that I see in the book of James, it is this. It's double-mindedness. He is writing to people who are trying to live in two worlds at one time. They want to be Christians, but they want to live like the world at the same time. And and James is like, you know, you've got to make up your mind. You keep going back and forth, and as a result, you are unstable. But if you look at verse number one, he talks, uh, the people that he addresses, he addresses as the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. The 12 tribes refers to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. There were 12 tribes, the 12 sons of of Jacob. Jacob is renamed Israel. But after Solomon dies, we no longer have the 12 tribes together. We have 10 tribes to the north, Israel, two tribes to the south, Judah, in the area that would come to be known as Judea during the time of Jesus. The 10 tribes are taken into captivity at the beginning of the 8th century, or the end of the 8th century. Assyrians, and they are now called the Ten Lost Tribes of Israel. It's sort of a misnomer because many of them actually moved down south into Judah. By the time Jesus comes into the world and James writes this, you don't have the twelve tribes per se. It becomes a popular way of speaking of the good days will come back. One day the twelve tribes will be here. But I don't think that's how James is using it. I think James is writing to Jewish Christians, not simply to Jews, but to Jewish Christians. 
who are scattered among the nations. We know from Acts chapter 8 that because of persecution, the church which had been in Jerusalem now spreads out. And James, who had been the head of the church in Jerusalem, now writes to those who are scattered out among the nations. Okay, one more question, and then we'll deal with some other things. When was the book written? Well, we we know that he died in 62, so it's a safe bet he wrote it before 62 A.D. Actually, he wrote it much earlier than that. As best we can tell, the book of James is the earliest. It's the first book in the New Testament written. And if nothing else, it should grab our attention on that level. It was written before Paul wrote any of his letters. Paul's first epistle is 51 A.D. to the Thessalonians. It is written before the church met in the Jerusalem Council. That's 48 A.D. It's written before there was any trouble between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, before the church really made inroads into the Jewish or the Gentile population. I would say it is written between 45 and 48 A.D., a time of real economic distress. There was a famine in Judah. It was the beginning of political, social, cultural upheaval that ultimately would end up with the Jewish war in 64 to 70, or 66 to 70, and the destruction of the Jewish people. Uh, For the most part, James couldn't write this letter after 70 AD. This is something he had to write around 45 to 48. So, the epistle of James, and by the way, epistle is an old English word that means letter. Okay, So, The letter of James was written by James, the brother of Jesus, written from Jerusalem to Jewish believers scattered throughout the Mediterranean region somewhere between 45 and 48 A.D. If this is a letter, what kind of a letter is it? Because uh, if you read through it, it will strike you as being different than letters you might write. It is what we would call an open letter or a literary letter. It begins as letters did of that day, as I told you earlier. But then after that, it's, it's gone. I mean, it's James. That's who writes it. He writes it to the 12 tribes. Greetings. And then after that, what we have, in essence, is a sermon. A sermon of 107 verses. It is very much unlike Paul's writings. It, Paul wrote to individuals or to specific churches. Here, there are no personal Remembrance. Oh, do you remember when this happened? You know, Paul will write to the Corinthians, yes, I, I stayed with so-and-so, or I baptized so-and-so. We have none of that at all. This is a very general letter that is written to the church at large. When you look through this book, at least four features should jump out at you. And this is where we will end today, so be patient with me. First of all, James uses metaphors and illustrations to make his points. I'll explain why I think he does that in a bit. But he uses, and particularly Jewish metaphors, Old Testament illustrations. Secondly, he borrows from other writers. This I think we would not have a clue about because we're not familiar with the ancient writers. But as we go through, I will point out, you know, James actually borrows this from someone else. Thirdly, and this is perhaps one of the more important features, there seems to be no structure whatsoever to this book. At least to the modern mind, there seems to be a lack of structure. Uh, Different writers have really, uh, well, Luther said that James 
threw things together chaotically. It's just like, oh yeah, let's say that. Oh, and that too. You know, just sort of put it all together and then said, okay, here's a letter. It is a collection of exhortations. There's no question about that. But you know what? If you read Romans chapters 12 and 13, Paul does the same thing there. If you read Hebrews chapter 13, you find all these exhortations put together. What we have in the book of James is a sermon. And not a sermon like I'm preaching, like a sermon you would hear today in most churches. It is a sermon of the first century. And the way preach, people preached back then is very different than the way people preach today. Today, you have structure, you have a beginning, you have a middle, you have an end. You have the application at the end. In the first century, they followed the model of the Jewish synagogue. And it was, in many ways, sort of a rapid-fire, say, two or three sentences about this subject, and then change subject and go, and then maybe come back to this later on, and then say something else. For us, it would drive us nuts, because it's not what we are used to. But in the first century, this is how sermons were preached. And by the way, if you want to have a sense of this at all, read the Sermon on the Mount sometime. We were very familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. But see if you can follow the structure there. I mean, it's not as structured as we have created in our minds. Uh, Jesus really changes subject. I mean, he's talking about being in the kingdom of God. But it doesn't work as a modern sermon, and neither does James's book. What we find in James is him preaching as he would and taking up subject, one subject after another, sometimes relating them, sometimes not, sometimes going back and reviewing, and other times abruptly introducing a new topic. Uh, one writer has noted, as soon as we read through James or the letter of James, we say to ourselves, this man was a preacher before he was a writer. And again, to digress just a second. In the ancient world, people did not write letters the way that we do. We have the ability to read silently. We have the ability to compose in our minds, not say it out loud, but put it down on paper. That's not how people wrote in the ancient world. In the ancient world, someone would dictate and somebody would write it down. The idea that you would actually write out your own thoughts without saying them out loud, people didn't just do that. So one can imagine James standing there and sort of preaching to this secretary, to the scribe, who's busily writing down, and it, in fact, comes out as a first-century sermon. The fourth feature, and the last thing I will talk about, is that the tone of this book is that of a pastor, we have more commands and imperatives in this book, at least in terms of frequency, than any other New Testament book. 108 verses in this epistle. More than 50 times we find James using the command form or the imperative. He is not writing to inform people, but to command them, to urge them, to encourage them. But lest you think that pastors just like to boss people around, and this is what James is doing, there is a very strong, tender pastoral note here. At least 15 times in this epistle, he will say, my brothers or my dear brothers. And we should have a sense as we begin our study of this epistle that this is a man who was a pastor who cared very deeply for the people who used to be a part of his church, but because of persecution have had to leave. 
And even though they are gone, he has not forgotten them. He is concerned about them, and he writes this letter to them. This is a man who, as a pastor, loves his flock. And I think that's very important because the Lord willing, next week when we meet, it pauses. If we don't understand James as a caring and loving pastor, when we read verse number 2, which is where the letter proper begins, in which he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. We're going to think this is a sick individual. Who would say such a horrible thing? And particularly next week, again, the Lord willing, when we are with our dear sister Paz, who has been bedridden all these years, such words come across as harsh and unfeeling and uncaring. Who would say such a horrible thing? We would say, you know, this sounds like someone who really doesn't know what it means to suffer. This is someone who has not been touched by the harsh realities of life. But James has, and James does understand. And he loves his people, and he writes this to them to encourage them as their pastor. It's my hope by God's grace that as we go through this epistle that we will learn and we will do what James says in this, in this epistle. We will not be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. We won't live with one foot in each world. We will be single-minded. We will be God's people. Let's pray together. Our Father, I've given out a lot of information today, but pray that it would, in fact, prepare our minds and our hearts for our study of this letter that is so important, so important that it's included in Scripture, that we would appreciate who wrote it and the circumstances in which he wrote it, the people who read this letter for the first time and what it meant to them. And then by your Spirit, may we apply it to our lives today. We thank you for your word and confess that we do take it for granted and oftentimes abuse it, using it as we choose rather than as you intended. May this study be a profitable one for each of us as individuals, but also as a congregation. And we ask that as we leave this place, your grace and spirit would go with us and then reunite us again next week as we meet uh, with pause. May that be a time of worship and of rejoicing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please, as we sing the doxology together? Please remember the various requests that have been mentioned during our worship service, things to pray for. Also pray for the men who will be working on this building in the coming week. The Lord bless you and keep you. 
The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.